Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week, I'm joined by Justin Moore. He's a master sommelier and currently the wine director for Rose's Restaurant Group out in Washington, D.C. Rose's Restaurant Group encompasses Rose's Luxury, Pineapple and Pearls, Little Pearl, and Rose's at Home. Uh, it was founded by Aaron Silverman. We've had a couple of alumni on the podcast from there. Chef BJ Lieberman of Chapman's Eat Market and Ginger Rabbit Jazz Lounge. And also Justin Singer, who is over at Chapman's Eat Market too as well. So, And Jordan Anthony Brown um, spent some time there too as well. And he's down in Cincinnati getting the aperture ready to open uh, sometime later this year. So we've had some alumni from that restaurant. And Justin recently just started there a year or so ago. We kind of get through his whole career. You know, he's had a really interesting experience going through through all the certifications and exams to become a master sommelier, something that is super unique. I don't think anybody's going to have an experience like he had. And I wanted to have him on to share his story. You know, I first learned about him through Instagram. He was tagged in a post uh, that somebody made that I was following. And we kind of talk about it at the beginning of the podcast, uh, beginning of the interview. You know, when I looked into his story and just everything that came with it, it was pretty eye-opening. So I thought it was super interesting. And like I said, super unique. You're not going to hear anything like this probably from anywhere. And he's super honest about his experiences, his thoughts on the wine world, certifications, all that stuff. It's pretty refreshing to hear somebody have the perspective that he has basically through the life experiences that he's had. And it's built upon that. And to kind of be just this authentic guy who loves wine but doesn't like all the other kind of BS that comes with it in a way. And you'll understand that more once you listen through the interview and the episode here. But that's kind of his whole ethos is just kind of be a good human, pursue whatever you want to pursue and pursue what's for you, you know, not what everybody else wants you to kind of do. So you can follow him on Instagram. It's at Gamayface is his handle. Uh, he also has his own company that he started, More Wines. He does seller consultation and beverage program consultations and wine consultations, all that kind of stuff. So you can reach him through his website. It's just morewines.com. He's got a contact page and everything there with services and all that stuff. Or you can reach him through Instagram, uh, which is at Gameface, but probably recommend going through the website if you're interested in getting in contact with him. And you can also find him at one of the restaurants. Um, like I said, he is the wine director there, so he is popping up at Roses or Pineapple and Pearl or Little Pearl here and there uh, in the D.C., downtown D.C. area. So you can also follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. We're on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, all that stuff. Either it's Spoon Mob or Spoon Mob 1, just depends on the platform. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. We have a bunch of different profiles for all of our guests that we've had up on the podcast so far. So any new information that comes out, new projects or anything like that, um, we put it up there too, even if it's after the episode aired you know, that they were on. We'll eventually invite them back if they want to come on and talk about whatever new thing that they're doing. Um, it's always an open standing invitation we have for people, but different food photos, wines, contact information, all that stuff is there on their page. It's all up on the website, uh, broken out in categories. We also have a contact portal there, so you can write in questions, comments, feedback too as well. Appreciate all the positive feedback that we get. That's always great to hear um, that people that continue to support us and uh, enjoy what we're doing. There are those naysayers out there that we do encounter from time to time. And as we are open to critical feedback from people, as long as it's justified and, and those people can kind of outline more than just, you know, we don't like it. If you can actually articulate a explanation as to why, you know, we appreciate that feedback too as well. But the rest of it, if it's just negative to be negative, um, we're not really paying too much attention to those folks and uh, don't really have too much time for them. But if you have something that you want to write in, even if it's a question for a future guest, 
um, that we're going to have on the podcast. You'll write it in. We'll get it fitted into whatever episode that we kind of think works best. And we'll let you know what episode that's going to come out and who answers that question. Make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use, Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon, Stitcher, run everything. Um, you can find us, just search Spoon Mob, either or use the link in our Instagram bio too as well. And we usually post a link with every new episode too as well, so you can easily find it. You can also check out our YouTube channel. We put all the episodes up there. About a week after they hit all the platforms, so it'll appear on YouTube. It's just a cover art image. There's no video, and then we run the audio behind it. But if YouTube is your preferred player, you can find all the episodes there. They're all exactly the same word for word. Audio is all the same, everything. There's no difference between any of the episodes on the app versus YouTube. It's the exact same audio. So you're not going to be getting different details than somebody else did or vice versa. So, But without any further delays, here is my conversation with Master Sommelier Justin Moore, the current wine director at Rose's Restaurant Group and the owner-founder of Moore Wines based out of Washington, D.C. Cool. Well, thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast. I was trying to think of the other day, I was like, how did I first learn about Justin? Because usually I can kind of pinpoint everybody like when I first kind of learned about what they were doing or whatever. For you, I couldn't remember if it was like a, you were tagged in somebody's Instagram post that I, I follow, one of the sommeliers, or if it came up during some of the studying that I'm doing, there was like a link between some of the names and, and stuff uh, with some of the videos or what, but started looking at kind of what you're doing and the interesting career and everything and what you're kind of doing now, which is you're at Rose's Restaurant Group. Uh, you're running their wine programs there. We've had a couple of alumni on, but no overlap with uh, you and them. It was uh, years ago when they worked there and they're actually out here in Columbus now. But I want to get to kind of how you wound up there and how you wound up in DC. But I always like to start with everybody kind of the start of their career and everything. So how did you kind of first get involved with hospitality, food, wine? Like how did that all first come about for you? I grew up in mom works nights. And so I started cooking really, really young. She's awesome and provided very, very well for us. But at the same time, I need to eat. I did go home from school. I need to eat something. Not that she was neglectful in any way. Great mom. But like, I was like, hey, I need some stuff in the fridge. So I started cooking really early. Long story short, that led me to work in restaurants. First job, I was 14 years old. I was under the table washing dishes at a place in Sullivan's Island, South Carolina, which is uh, just outside of Charleston, where I'm from, basically led to a lot of restaurant time. By the time I was 20, I was like a lead line cook and supervisor for a local restaurant group. And by the time I was 25, I was the executive chef of four restaurants within that restaurant group. We had eight restaurants total. So happened pretty quickly. Had the opportunity to go to Johnson Wales. I actually turned it down because at the time I was like, I am going to go spend a bunch of time in college and come out and have the exact same job that I already have. Like that doesn't make sense to me. So turn that down. By the time I was 25, I realized, hey, I'm working 70 hours a week. Servers are working 35. They're making about the same money that I am and they have zero stress. Maybe I should give this a go. I say fuck a lot. So I was like, I don't know if this is going to work me in the front of the house, but fuck it, let's do it. So there were a couple other catalysts in my life at that point. I've played music my entire life. I picked up instruments when I was 12. I've always like fed that passion. And there's a lot of parallels between music and wine, I find. But I'm sure we'll get to that later. My band had split up. I basically decided I wanted to be surrounded by better musicians and better people and move to the front of the house. So basically, sight unseen, I moved to Nashville, which you'll find is a theme in um, my history, which is pretty rad. 
I'm thankful for the places that I've lived when I've lived there. So ended up living in Nashville for nine years, started waiting tables, immediately found out that I made more money and better tips when I sold wine. So instead of like a lot of servers do, you know, let's go hit the bars. we got a hundred bucks in our pockets. You know, I was like, actually everybody pitch in 20 bucks and come over to my house and we're going to spin some records and pop bottles. So I started keeping bottles around and it would be like, let's taste some Pinot Noir. Now let's taste some Syrah. Now let's taste some Zinfandel. And I didn't know this, but at the time I was building like this muscle memory of what all these grapes were like. It worked really well. A friend of mine was like, wow, you're really into wine. You should work in a wine shop. So I ended up working in this awesome little shop that's still around in Nashville, just outside of Sylvan Park called Grand Cru Wine and Spirits. And it's actually the longest job I've ever had. I worked there for about seven years. I got paid $11 an hour for seven years and basically put every dollar I earned back into the wine shop for continued education. I actually still have a stash of wine there. So whenever I go back to Nashville, I'm like, hey, what's in the stash? Oh, cool. This is here. The guys are really good friends. We stay in touch and I couldn't be happier for what they've created. At the same time, I was playing music and waiting tables, starting to get into wine pretty serious. Ended up in a pretty fantastic restaurant there that was in kind of a neighborhood, which is not my scene usually, but we were surrounded by like doctors and lawyers who just happen to be some of the biggest wine collectors in the country. And they would come in and bring unbelievably legendary shit in. I'm just talking like I remember specific nights where they'd be like, hey, um, it's a 1950s night. We're drinking 1950s Burgundy. There's going to be a lot of 55 and there's going to be some 58s, but you know, and there would be like five wines per course and five courses. And at the end of the day, there's me here in an apron has been popping corks all, all night with like two to three ounces of wine, maybe half a bottle left in all these bottles. And like the experience and education I got between the wine shop and this restaurant was insane. And still to this day, I think about how lucky I was to kind of fall into these places to feed that passion. And also how unfortunate it is that so many current people who are in the industry and young upcoming sommeliers have a hard time accessing these wines. Not to brag, but like I've had 47 Shovel Blanc a couple times. And when a lot of people would be like, wow, I don't even know what that is. What is that? You know, I'm like, well, it's one of the wines of the century and yeah, yeah. And like, they don't have access. Like people have been priced out of the game. And so now everybody just has experience with what's reasonable. Don't get me wrong. Like I love 20 to $30 bottles of wine. That's where my comfort zone is. I rarely spend more than 120 in a restaurant because I know the markup and it's just frustrating. But like I'm surrounded by all these great bottles of wine and I'm learning everything. And that same friend who's like, hey, you should go for the Somme test. And I was like, what's that? I didn't even know. So I had been in the industry for a firm like five to seven years. We were in tasting groups. We just did it to learn. There was no real goals there. And I was like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll go take this test. So I took the intro. It was the first year that the court did an intro, which is, I believe, 2012. And I got through. I was like, well, you can't say you're a SOM unless you pass certified. So I went got certified the next year or the next time it was available. And so that was good. Then I was pretty content just hanging out, enjoying life in Nashville. And then I had the opportunity to move to Aspen with a job and I had just opened a really cool restaurant with another, with, uh, at the time, he is a master sommelier at Louisville, and we opened a restaurant in um, Nashville together. And he basically was like, you can go to Aspen? Go. I was so stressed. I was like, hey, man, because it was also like a time crunch. Like, you have two weeks. 
to get here. And I was like, all right, cool. He was super cool about it. I went to Aspen, landed there like the first six months. Anywhere you're new, you have a hard time fitting in. Once again, sight unseen. Get out there and I'm like, I don't know if people are supposed to live at this altitude. It's really cold. Oh my God, I'm from the South. What the hell is going on? Get out there. All of a sudden, like start to put the things together. I realize I'm either going to be a ski bum that smokes pot and drinks wine for this portion of my life, or I'm going to like really dig in hard and try to go for the next level, which was the advance. And so I decided to dig in hard, see all these people walking around and they got like their arms in slings and they're on crutches. And I'm like, I, I didn't move out here to break a leg. Like, so I moved out here to drink good wine, surround myself with better people. Again, there's that, you know, other part of the theme started studying three to five hours a day, which eventually went to like three to 10 hours a day. Basically, that was the three years of my life I was in Aspen, um, ended up working in a killer Italian program. Um, Italy was a weak point in my studies. Everyone, when they hear Aspen, they think the Little Nell. And the Little Nell is, you know, it's an institution for a reason, but it's also at the time, it was pretty inclusive. Not being part of that was, I, I kind of took pride in that. You know, I've always kind of been anti-establishment, a little bit against the grain, formed what was the best tasting group I've ever been in. And um, definitely one of the best study groups I've ever been in with a good friend of mine, uh, Greg Van Wagner, who's still in Aspen and a badass human being. We went through advanced together, really started to buckle down for masters. At the time, I realized Aspen was great, but after three years, I felt like I kind of plateaued career-wise. I didn't really see any chance for growth. If you've never been, Aspen's a magical place, but it's a really small town. It's a very small community. There's about like six to eight blocks of commerce, restaurants, and shops. People would come in all the time and be like, whoa, what's it like to live in Aspen? And I'm like, try buying a pair of socks because there's Gucci and Fendi and Prada and Burberry. And like outside of that, there's no normal human places. And I consider myself more of a normal human. So it was tough. Aspects were tough. But the friends I made there, the culture, the humans there are tip top. Some of the best people I've ever known in my life. My mentor there is still like a brother and a father figure and a very, very good friend to this day. Wouldn't change that time in my life for anything. But I realized I plateaued, moved to Las Vegas. Las Vegas had a massive sommelier community, a lot of whom were ready for the master level. And the amount of people there that were on the same level made it a wise move. So moved to Las Vegas, um, immersed myself again in the community. I did struggle with the culture there because after leaving Aspen, Aspen's very Colorado. There's no ties. I don't care how fancy of a restaurant you're in, you don't wear a tie. There, at the time, there was very little corporate. Like the work ethic was there, but the focus was on quality of life. And when I moved to Las Vegas, not sudden scene this time, I had been to Vegas once. Vegas was a bit of a culture shock, very corporate, very tight run. Everybody wore a tie. So I had a hard time finding my place. Decided to put my focus in a study. Got through theory on my second try. Got through service on my first try. Got through tasting on my second try. I mean, I passed the MS exam in 2019. And considering I took the intro in 2017, I don't think I'm a smart person. I have strengths and weaknesses like anybody else. Um, book study is not my place. But like to get through it that quick in retrospect is kind of cool. And I'm glad it didn't take me too much longer. I don't know if I'd have had the stamina to continue. So then... Vegas was cool. Ended up living in downtown. The Arts District in Las Vegas, if you were going to visit, please like look me up on Instagram or whatever and get in touch and let me help you find the good places because 
Vegas is not just the strip. Off the strip, there is a massive culture. The last two years I lived in Vegas, I went to the strip a total of five times. And it's like when you have family in town and they're like, let's see the lights, you know? Arts District was amazing. My partner had an opportunity out here back on the East Coast my family being on the East Coast, I thought it wise to kind of be all in the same time zone. So we decided to relocate to DC. We got out here early in 2022, I guess late February, early March, ended up landing in a really rad neighborhood in Capitol Hill. This was the first time in my life that I ever had to interview for jobs, I feel like, because basically, you know, it's, oh, this person and this person, it's all connections, small towns, you know, and like helping each other out and immersed in community. And I move out here once again, sight unseen, didn't know anybody. I knew like, eh, I knew two people out here and which became three and then more. And like the community here is really awesome, extremely welcoming. I spent a couple months literally months, fun employed, and just took every interview I could really try to feel out the needs and opportunities in the city and was working part-time at a really rad restaurant called Albi. If you visit, it's way worth checking out. Awesome, awesome stuff they're doing. But ended up looking for a career. I forget who put me in touch with, but I eventually found um, Aaron uh, Rose's Restaurant Group. And I am a novice when it comes to like, I've never been one to keep up with names of people and who is who. I worked with Mark Vetri in Vegas for a long time, not realizing like what a personality and huge influence he's had on the culinary world. And he's an immaculate human. Yeah. I've never like, oh, Michael Mina, who's that? I don't know. You know, Raj Parr. Yeah. I've heard of that dude. Like whoever, like I've never followed names or trends or anything. And especially restaurants, like I'd rather have a taco than a 10 course tasting menu personally, but I understand the need for it. And I'm really glad people like it because it's it helps pay the bills. And we have a really, really good time doing it. Got introduced to Aaron. I think we were slotted for like a 45 minute interview and ended up talking for like an hour and a half. We just like hit it off. A lot of the concepts that we share with not just with restaurants, but also with just like life in general and like what's important really clicked. It made sense. We courted for a little while and made sense. So yeah, here we are. So I've been the wine director for Rose's Restaurant Group a little over six months now, I guess. I'm having a blast. We have a couple of super cool restaurants. So Shameless Plug, Pineapple and Pearls, Crushes, absolutely iconic place. Happy to have that place back open. Rose's Luxury is the foundation and has been open for nine years. Also kind of like a interesting dinner concept that we have called Little Pearl as well, which secretly is my favorite place. It's just the personalities there and like the flow and the ease and the food. I think it's, it's wild. I always recommend it. It's way more approachable. And then we also have a massive catering thing that we call Roses at Home, which is a beast. We have a killer wine club that goes out once a period, so about 13 times a year. And it's kind of like you choose how much you want to play and we make it nice. And, you know, there's sometimes there's themes and sometimes there's not, but the wine club is great. I've never worked in a city that was so Michelin focused. So it's been a little bit of like, oh, is this important? Is this a thing that I should know about? Is this whatever, you know, it's kind of new to me. It's been thrilling to be a part of it. I love it. I am thankful for this day off, but I'm also looking forward to getting back and seeing the challenges that tomorrow has for me. You're cooking, you're running kitchen restaurants, part of this group in, in South Carolina, and you decide to switch to the front of the house. At that point, before you make that switch, 
Were you feeling like you were on the trajectory to eventually be like a chef owner of a restaurant one day? Like that's what you kind of wanted to do? I have always had this weird mentality where it's like, it's tough to say, oh, this is my five-year plan and this is my two-year plan. And I understand how a lot of people need that structure in life and how a lot of people flow with that or whatever. But for me, it's always been have the ability to recognize an opportunity and then have the courage to say yes to it. That is what brought me out of the kitchen into Nashville, into Aspen, into Vegas, and eventually here to DC was, hey, this is an opportunity. You only live once. Like, How many people do you know that have stayed where they were born and where they live and they hung out with their high school friends? And hey, man, don't get me wrong. Like, There is a comfort in that. And I get that. But like, true growth is outside of the comfort zone. And this world is a big place to live in other places. I didn't have an aspiration to be a chef owner. And actually after like that many years in the kitchen and being that close to ownership at, you know, executive chef level, I was like, the last thing I ever want to do is own a restaurant. I feel the stress of that. Like, no, I've come up with a lot of cool concepts over the years and there's a lot of fun things floating around and maybe one day that opportunity is going to land and I'll say yes to that. But at this time, I really like being part of a bigger team. So when you wind up in Nashville over that stretch of time that you're there, I mean, you're doing a bunch of different stuff, serving, consulting, sommelier, wine manager, all this stuff. But before you start kind of getting into the exam part, were you just trying to bring on as much knowledge that you could learn about the wine world? Like you were just interested in it or was it kind of driven by like, well, the further up I go and kind of the wine world ladder, like obviously I can make more money, which is great. We're all money driven to a certain extent. You need it to live. Before you get into the exams, like what was kind of your focus or idea of where you were going? It was all about just feeding passion. If you look at people who love their careers and like have a really happy, meaningful life, they're usually doing something that they love and people love doing things that they tend to be good at. Music was and has always been a big part of that for me. But at the same time, when I found wine, it resonated. Up until then, I didn't have, I felt like I had a pretty poor memory. Like I couldn't remember people's names really well. I was a pretty poor student in school, or so the teachers always said. I've since realized I was just bored because I had a lot of fucking lame teachers. I was like, oh, I can remember this wine and what it tastes like. And I started to like build this muscle memory. And still to this day, you know, I'm not saying I'm a great blind taster, but if somebody puts a glass of Pinot Noir, I can put my nose in it and pretty much be like, well, that sounds, smells like Pinot Noir. So I realized I was good at it. I also could remember these things. Like I can remember the last time I saw this one customer that came in and, oh, Lisa, last time I saw you, you had a 2008 yada yada Pinot Noir. It stuck. And all of a sudden I could remember all of these things and it made sense to me. Regions made sense, grapes. And I really was attracted to the history of it. So to answer your question, I didn't really have a goal. Once again, I didn't know there was an exam. It was just something I was passionate about. I was like, I can get paid to surround myself with things I love. Wine, let's do it. We've had a couple people on previously that spent a significant portion of their time in bands. I think they've all been chefs or on kind of the food side of the hospitality industry. I think you're kind of the first wine person who spent a significant amount of time in, in the music industry. So what's kind of the correlation? What makes it similar, that music mentality to going to the world of wine? Because they all kind of explained going from music to being a chef, there's a lot of similarities with resiliency. And you 
never know kind of what the next night's going to bring because you're on tour, you're in a, you're in a bus and you're just trying to make it to the next city. But they all had this moment. I'm not enjoying this. I don't want to do this anymore. Did you have that kind of moment or was it just simply the band broke up and it was, I don't really feel like finding another band. It was a little bit of everything to hit on a couple points. If you are into music and wine and you also like art, I'm going to shamelessly plug my very good friend who has a zine called Blood of Gods that I am a regular contributor to. And it brings those three aspects together. Very cool dude named Stacy out of Walla Walla. That's all I'll say. Please look that up. Very good people, very cool stuff. And it's all about like taking the pretentiousness out of those things. Music and wine have so many correlations that I couldn't even scratch the surface in our talk. But I will say that they're both creative passions. And I think that's the major correlation is the more you give in to something that you're good at and that you're passionate about, whether it's sports or writing or music or art or anything creative, the more it gives back. And I've always viewed wine in that way. Wine isn't just a bottle on a shelf or on a website. There's a lot of things that go in between that. There's a creative force. There's art behind it. The more you feed that passion, the more it gives back. If you decide you like wine and you want to take a test, great. You'll find that it gives back. The same thing with music. If you sit at home and practice instead of hitting the, the bars and the keg parties like uh, Saturday night, Justin, you want to go to a keg party? There's going to be that girl you like there, dude. And I'm like, no, I'm gonna, I need to practice, man. Like, I really need to put four more hours in today. And I meant maybe that's, that's crazy. I know a lot of people don't live that way, but the more you give, the more it gives back. The catalyst for me was I had a really great client who I'm still friends with. He goes by Espo and he is the big, big boss at Warner Brothers. He knew me from the restaurants and from wine. I never once, and still to this day, I don't think he knows that I play music. Like I'm on Spotify and I got records out and stuff and he doesn't know. And I'm totally cool with that because it's not our relationship. We got into wine. I was working in the wine store. I knew him from the restaurant. I said, hey, Espo, let me put together like a really cool case of wine. Like I figured you out. We've got to know each other. It would be good for the restaurant. It'd be good for our relationship. It'd be good for the wine shop. He's like, yeah, cool. Put together a case of wine, bring it over. And I was like, oh shit, that's illegal. I can't deliver wine. But I was like, ah, fuck it, whatever. No one's going to catch me. This is beyond the statute of limitations at this point. So basically, uh, I put together this case of wine and I go down to Warner Brothers and I walk in and I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Airheads when the dude's trying to like sneak in and he's got his like unsolicited tape and he's like trying to sneak up the executive's office. But that was me, but with a case of wine instead of a CD. So I get up to the top, right? And I'm sitting in like the CEO's office. And I remember there's like some kid playing guitar on a couch. I'm looking around. It's just like fucking immaculate. Exactly what you'd expect the head of Warner Brothers to look like. And I go in there and I was like, hey, man, here's your case of wine. And I look down and, you know, there's this case of wine in my hand. It's not a guitar that got me there. It wasn't some like record. It wasn't all of the years that I put into music. It was this box of wine. And just in my head, I was like, maybe I should take this shit a little bit more serious. So that was one of the big, kind of the big moment that helped me do that. And my friend just being like, hey, there's a test. Go take the test. What kind of music were you playing? I grew up on metal and like thrash and like old school shit and still listen to it. You know, it has its place when I'm driving around. By the time I hit Nashville, well, to back up a little bit, 
I think around the time I was like 16 or 17, I found pot. And then I was like, oh, wow, what's this Led Zeppelin and all this other great rock and roll? So I found that. It kind of mellowed me out a little bit. By the time I landed in Nashville, everyone's like, oh, Nashville is all about honky-tonk, boy. You want to play that honky-tonk music? And nope, never once played honky-tonk music. Man, I've played the best dives in Nashville and some of the biggest stages. And when we toured out of there, we had a blast. But we were playing like funk heavy funk. It was just groovy, good time stuff, bluesy, jazzy. That was the last time I was in like a full band. The last project I did was actually full circle, kind of a folky, me on a guitar, singing sad songs into a microphone. And that's what's on Spotify currently. Um, The reason I did that is just like, I got this old guitar the parents gave me like back when I was 12. It's still kicking around and we would drive around and listen to these old songs from like John Prine and Johnny Cash, Leonard Cohen, Tom Waits and stuff, sing them in the car. Well, I didn't know what any of the lyrics meant. I didn't know what any of this stuff meant. And I kind of rediscovered that music. And I was like, I'm going to put together some songs. And over the course of a couple of years, the songs fell together, decided to record them. Did it all for just like posterity for the family. And it was basically like, here you go. The guy I was recording with was like, oh, like, dude, I'll publish you on all of the platforms for like nothing. And I was like, all right, cool. doesn't hurt anything. It's pretty cool to be like, yeah, I'm on yada, yada. It's on iTunes, but iTunes is evil and they don't pay anything. But that's another story. Yeah, when I was doing some research before this, it came up. I'm not big into country music or anything, but apparently there's a country music musician, same name, Justin Moore. There was like some article. It was like Justin Moore is playing at like uh, the San Francisco Giants, like baseball stadium or something. And I'm like, is this the same? And I was like, okay, no, that's not the same guy. Okay if I can just briefly. So he started taking off when I was still in Nashville. I remember a friend coming up to me and like, dude, you're playing the Ryman tonight. Nice. Ryman is like the Carnegie hall of the South. If you're not familiar, like it's amazing. But I was like, no, I'm not playing the Ryman tonight. I haven't hit it. And this guy, I've never met him and I don't want to talk poorly about anybody, but it's pretty shitty pop country music. If that's your thing, Hey, do you, we're all different people. I ain't hating on it, but it, it ain't for me. So when you first learn about the exams, you know, this person tells you, hey, there's these wine exams that you could take. And you're like, cool. I'm assuming they just told you about the court of master. Did they tell you anything about the other organizations or was it just the direction you just happened to go into? It was literally kind of the only thing happening at that time. I was in literally a backwater, which was Nashville at the time. I think there was three Psalms in the whole community. One of them was a restaurant owner that just happened to be an advanced sommelier. And outside of that, there wasn't a lot of action at all. I was probably, I think I was one of the first two or three floor psalms in Nashville ever. So like, and that was certified back in like 13. You know, Nashville hadn't quite blown up yet. It isn't what it is today. I'm glad I lived there when I did. And yeah, it was just the court, man. It's what made sense. The one thing to kind of touch on the difference between the two and why I am glad that I went the route that I did. Like I couldn't hack it in WSET to be totally honest, like their format, like the structured learning, the essays, the exams, isn't my style of learning. What did make the court attractive was you pay your whatever hundred dollars show up and you take an exam. The studying is up to you. You have to put in the work and you have to learn it for yourself. You know, granted there are some guidelines and whatever, 
But that's basically how it is. Like you show up to certified and you better be ready to be your best on that day. You show up to the upper level exams, you know, there's, there's not a lot of guidance as far as to like what you need to know. And it's a good thing and a bad thing. Like it does lack some transparency and it does lack a little bit of that. But for me and my learning style, it worked. When you wind up out in Aspen in ski country, building wine programs and running wine programs, is that easier, harder, or just different than restaurant in a big city like Vegas or New York or wherever, where you kind of have this whole city is funneling into kind of the restaurant community in some way where ski country, everybody's there for three, four, five months. There has to be snow on the ground kind of deal. They all come there and then they're gone. So is there a big difference between wine programs in that sense, or is it just different and that's it? Each market has its own challenges and rewards. If you are a wine director who has only ever done business in, for example, Chicago, then yeah, I'm sure you're really well ingrained and you know the market in and out and you know who carries what books and all that. Like, where's the growth? You know, I was thankfully able to experience a lot of great markets. Nashville was great because it had the collectors and it had like the old school stuff. So I got to grow up on classics. Aspen and Colorado in general is a tremendously badass market. I still miss am friends and am in touch with all my distributor buddies out there. Like I still honestly like have the Monday morning calls with some of my old reps and I'm like, Hey man, how you doing? Oh, you want me to call so-and-so down at this restaurant? Cause they're fucking off on an allocation. Okay. Like we're still really tight friends. Colorado's an immaculate market. I miss it. What the biggest shock from Nashville to, to Colorado was I had to come to the realization that we didn't drink 55 Burgundy every Thursday, that wines are actually really, really expensive. And that's when my infatuation with Gamay happened, um, because I could get all the best Gamay, and it was up to $30 cost. And guess what? That's my comfort zone. When I compare those markets to Las Vegas, I don't have a lot of good things to say about being a buyer in Las Vegas. Now, some people go there and they absolutely thrive. I wasn't one of those people for one reason. It is hyper, hyper corporate. Basically, you have one distributor that owns the state. You have a couple cool like little distributors. There's one called, I'll have to look it up to make sure I get this right, but it's Balden. They're very new. They're out of Reno, but like those are the people, man. Those are the good ones. But outside of that, Vegas is a very large corporate entity that has realized how to just suck every single penny out of every single element in the community. It's not just about getting that tourist dollar. How do we pay people less? Our employees? How do we make money on our employees? There's things out there, employee dining rooms that are in casinos. There's so much just like, it's soul sucking, to be totally honest. Like if you are a creative, free thinking, free flowing human, Vegas is a fun place to visit, but to be a director there, it's not. Don't get me wrong, I loved what we put together there, but the entire operation looks at it backwards. The freedom that I'm experiencing currently in DC is like the warmest hug ever, man. DC is a blast. I am loving buying wine out here. I'm finding cool, old, rare. Community's great. There's a couple dozen distributors that I'm using and building amazing relationships with. We can buy from collectors. We can do whatever as long as we pay tax on it. It's super rad. Like the wines 
that we're opening are just insane. Over New Year's, we did like a 70s flight and we had a 76 Chateauneuf to pop, which was honestly like my wine buy of the year. No shit, it was that good. Uh, 78 like Grand Cru Burgundy and a 77 Pomerol that we had open. And we're like, we're just gonna do this. And honestly, they were gone in a day, but like just to be able to source those wines and to afford them and not only to like put them in the guest hands and the guest glasses, but to like expose our younger Psalm community to that is awesome. Whenever we pop something cool, I make sure that people in our group understand it. I want to use our group as like an educational platform. I want people to look back at working at Rose's Restaurant Group when I was here, I am here, while I'm here, and look at this kind of era as like, look at all I learned. So yeah, buying out here is a blast. That's the difference. Every state basically is its own little country with its own little laws when you look at all the places. So some states are more fun to buy in than others. And I happen to be in a really rad place right now. When you take the master exam 2019, what was the most challenging part for you? Was it theory, service, tasting? Probably not an answer you're going to expect. Theory was not my strong point. I worked really, really hard for theory. I've never failed a service exam. Service is a strength. Tasting, it's all in your head. Like, you know, if you're a good taster or not, it's a muscle that you can build. The toughest part of the exam for me was passing the exam. When I passed, we were one year to the date or from the week out from all the shit that had happened in 2018. There was a fuck ton of emotion. In 2018, my entire study group passed. My best friends, my partner at the time, everybody I knew, Greg, everybody passed. When Then I saw them so happy and I was happy for them at the time. But then in 2019, I'm sitting on that podium alone. It didn't feel good. I didn't enjoy it. And if you you can look up the picture, like they're handing me the thing, like the certificate or whatever. And like, I'm not even smiling. I was a mixed bag. And then dealing with the fallout. And this is something not a lot of people talk about. Um, and I heard about it and I was like, yeah, whatever, dude, it's not me. But like post-exam, you know, depression or whatever is a thing. You have this part of your life where you're studying your ass off, where you have three to four hours of your day that's committed to this one task. Then you get through that task and you're given all this free time, not to mention the emotional baggage of just seeing all your friends, like, you know, emotionally stripped and drained to the point where they're in therapy. You know, you have, you have that too. And it's just like, how am I supposed to deal with this? A lot of people see it as this huge lift. Oh man, I just I just passed the most difficult thing in the world. Yay. Guess what, man? Like it goes away. It all goes away. And then guess what? You have to pay the rent and you have to like cut the grass and take out the trash and wash the dishes. You got to be a normal fucking human again. Master sommeliers and like just to be super blunt, aren't super special people. Like all we are is people who pass an exam. We were people who showed up on game day with our absolute best face on and we crush that exam. That's it. It doesn't make us anybody to look up to. It doesn't make us anything to aspire to. It's all about you. If this is something for you, then do it. And if it's not, then don't. So one of the things you mentioned, I don't think people were aware of, you had a pretty unique situation in the fact that like you're mentioning all these people that you're kind of studying with wind up passing. But also, I believe at the time, your partner was studying too. She passed and then had to retake it. 
and you had to basically watch firsthand this person pass this master exam, then be told, no, there's this cheating scandal. You have to retake it. When you have this front row seat to something like that, what what does that do to you? Like, do you start questioning, like, if she's got to take it twice, like, am I going to have to take it twice? Like, I haven't even passed it once. Like, why, what am I doing? Like, do you have those thoughts at all? Or like, how does that mess with trying to finish this exam that you're at, like, kind of this finality point where it's like you got one more hurdle and you're like, oh, but they're moving the goalpost on me. I don't have the respect for the institution that I used to. I don't wear a pin. If you get an email from me from my work email or my personal email, it doesn't say MS on it, but I am not like gonna, you know, throw the title away. It's still something I earned. When you go through all that, it changes your perspective. Definitely. There's a couple things that I would like for people to kind of think about differently. And if you're not aware, just kind of a synopsis of what happened. I presume if you're listening to this podcast, you're kind of in the wine community and you're like, oh man, let's see what this dude's got to say about this shit. Well, this is what I got to say about this shit. Firstly, like it wasn't a cheating scandal. It was an information leak. This information leak came from a board member. That board at that time mishandled the situation. Since then, a lot of negative things have happened. There has been the mishandling of a Black Lives Matter movement. There was also a whole shit ton of MSs got called out for being creepers. You know, some of them got kicked out. Some others probably should be kicked out. There's a reason that I'm not currently involved with exams, and that's because we're not ethically or morally aligned. Am I glad I went through the court? Yes. Am I glad for the person that I am today? Absolutely. However, morally and ethically, we're not in line. And I hope that in the future we become in line and that I can be a little bit more involved. And that's kind of the fallout of seeing your partners and loved ones suffer trauma through people's decisions or indecision or from them being reactive rather than proactive when they know there's a situation. I wish the current board chair people, chairman, vice chair, and CEO, the absolute best in bringing back the respect and integrity of the institution. But that's where I stand for now. If you didn't pass it that second time that you took it with all that stuff going on, do you think you would have done it again? It's a very addictive thing, studying and testing. One of my best friends in this world has taken the MS exam 11 times. He has passed, I think he just reset a third or fourth time. He has passed every single aspect of the exam, some of them multiple times, has never failed theory, and yet he is not an MS. When you get momentum in the exams, it's kind of addictive and you want to succeed. You become immersed in a culture that is about passing exams. I'm not saying it's healthy and I'm not saying it's not healthy, but it's something that like mentally we should look at and think if, you know, are we doing the right thing? I would have continued and done it because honestly, I had another swing. If you're not familiar with how the exam works, basically you have three swings at theory. If you um, pass within three tries, then you get three swings at service and tasting. Had I not passed that tasting portion when I did, I would have had one more swing. And yeah, I would have gone back for it. But had I not succeeded at either attempt, I definitely would have moved on. But it's different for everybody. My buddy who's still swinging, fucking go for it, man. Like I get it. 
I get it. You have put so much time and effort into it. You deserve it. And if that's your goal and that's your, that's what you're focused on, do it. As you mentioned earlier, kind of the region that you kind of struggled with was Italy and you did a lot of studying because the part that you struggled with at the exam was the written part there. Can you get lost in studying? Oh, totally. It's really tough to stay focused and it's really easy to go down the, the, the rabbit hole, man. It's super easy. You, once again, you want to feed your passion. So my, like, I love French wine. I dig Italian wine, but as a weak point in study, that's why I worked in an Italian restaurant. So you can start digging into French wine and the next thing you know, eight hours have gone by and you're reading about the soil type of this one producer that's like way in the outskirts of the mountains who only has like nine vines and it's like, what the hell? Like, do I need to know this? And I think that's a huge question that is really hard for a lot of people who are studying to answer is, do I need to know this? And if you're looking for a really, really good resource on what I should study, what I shouldn't, is this too deep of a dive? Do I need to go deeper? Because there's different levels too. Like if you're at certified, you probably don't need to know a bunch of dumb, obscure shit about insert whatever stupid region in Switzerland, you know, you don't. But if you're at a master level, you do. That's important to ask yourself. There's a really great resource and it's jwaeducation.com. I think almost everything on that site is free. Um, the person who went through that passed the MS exam and is a badass and very good human. And and with all those resources to share with you. So like, please use that. There are other great resources out there too, that, but this one helps you quantify how deep you should go. When you're going through studying and everything, you know, you're with your partner who's also studying at the same time, does that help or hurt in the fact that you always have guaranteed study partner every night, but you also have a guaranteed study partner every night? It's good and bad. And more than anything, it's reflective. And I think it helps you understand how you study and what your strengths and weaknesses are. That's why we have study groups in general. I remember specifically joining this study group. I was really fortunate enough to go to the Rudd Roundtable. If you are really, really serious about getting through the MS exam and you are near or at the advanced level, do everything you can to go to the Rudd Roundtable. The Rudd Roundtable, if you're not familiar, is after the advanced exam, there are three advanced exams. The high score from each exam gets to go to this thing called the Rudd Roundtable. It's put on by Rudd Winery in Nashville. I was not the high score. I got invited because my mentor basically is high up in the court and said, we think you should go. The Rudd Roundtable is one weekend annual gathering for advanced candidates that show very good potential that to, to pass the MS exam. That's basically what it is. So thank you, Rudd Foundation, for putting that together. But basically, after this portion, I was surrounded by these a different like group. And this group was, they had their shit together. And they knew theory, and I didn't. And so that study group like helped quantify what we needed to know. And I remember we're sitting there in a Zoom session one day, and we're asking each other questions in a roundtable. And somebody asked this question, and I don't even remember what it was. It was something about like single vineyards of Kava or something. And I'm like, this doesn't matter. Everyone else in the group knew the answer and I didn't. And I was like, fuck, I should probably know that. And so like, it helps quantify that. When my partner and I were both going through the MS exam together, we realized that we study differently. And we honestly didn't study together a lot. When it came to tasting, it was immensely helpful because we got to pull our resources 
and get better wine for that. And the most beneficial thing was we came up with this kind of a game. And it was like when we're in traffic, sitting in a stoplight, and we would do this thing. It'd be like, I am a red grape. (laughs) All right, cool. You're a red grape. I'm like, great. You have five questions. What are the most important things? Okay, you're a red grape. Do you have new oak? Yes. Are you like translucent? Yes. All right, new oak, translucent, red grape. All right, shit, what could we be? And then we basically would come down and be like, cool, you're Oregon Pinot Noir. You know, and within five questions, it would help us quantify like what are the big takeaways. And that was the most beneficial thing of studying together. She might have different answers, but we'll see. <laughs> Once you pass, you know, they give you the, the pin, the certificate, everything. Everybody, you know, usually celebrates when they pass an exam differently. It always seems like everybody kind of winds up getting a cocktail, something that's not wine. Were you the same? Did you, was the first drink after all that a non-wine? I actually took a week off and didn't drink anything. When I did finally pop a bottle, I celebrated really hard when I passed advance. And I celebrated really hard when I passed master theory. Master theory was a big one. Uh, My mentor always said, well, if you pass master theory, no one can call you a dumbass. The very first thing um, was very on brand. I popped like one of my favorite bottles of Beaujolais. Like I know it's cliche at this point to like Beaujolais, but I've been on that bandwagon for a long time. I literally popped a $30 bottle of Beaujolais and I was like, cool, master sommelier. This is what wine's supposed to taste like. To kind of bring that full circle to Beaujolais helped me pass the exam and I wouldn't have passed the exam leading up to that final tasting portion where I did succeed in 2019. I was in a really weird place. Like I said, I've always been able to like stick my nose in the glass and be like, oh, that's Pinot Noir. And there's a lot of grapes that we all call, this is the home run grape, like easy breezy. I can stick my nose in Sancerre or Chablis or whatever and be like, cool, that's what that is. For some reason, like a few months out before the exam, I guess it was stress or nerves or whatever. I couldn't do that anymore. And I couldn't identify anything. I was doing like a flight of six every day or every other day. And I was doing blind parallels like constantly. And I was tasting so much wine and none of it was sticking. And I I made myself stop. And I was like, why am I doing this? Like I really had to stop and reset. I was in two different tasting groups, all at a very high level and three months out. And I said, stop. And I was like, you're not enjoying this. It doesn't matter to you right now. Why are you doing this? And then the answer was because I love wine. I think I'm going to drink wine the rest of my life. I love it, love it. And I was like, what do I love about it? And I was like, I went home that night from work. I didn't even really feel like drinking. And I popped a bottle of one of my all-time favorite Beaujolais, drank that entire bottle that night relatively quickly and woke up the next day. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to tasting groups anymore. I'm not going to run my grid anymore. I'm not going to do all that stuff. And I basically chilled for three months. And I walked in the exam room more confident than I'd ever been before. And I was like, you know what? I've been doing this for years. I'm good at it. This exam doesn't mean shit. I'm going to pass it. Watch. And I did. When they tell you that you passed, I know you mentioned in the photo, like you didn't look like the happiest person, but was it, did you have a sense of joy or relief? Like, I'm happy that I passed or was it more of relief? Like, thank God I don't have to do this anymore or do this again. Or was it neither of those because everybody you were kind of working with had just passed before you and you're like, this isn't supposed to feel like this. You never really know how you're going to react. I know a lot of people like well up and they cry and they get emotional. And I probably had a pretty atypical thing. Empathy has been a pretty big core fundamental to me. Um, It's something I always try to think about. I always try to put myself in somebody else's shoes and I really care about the people I care about. 
And when they, I knew that I'd passed and I was indifferent to the result. And I know that's not typical for a lot of people. After you've put in six, seven years, you want that result. The court used to do this thing where they would mess with you and they'd be like, so you really need to work on this. And um, you were really good here, but you weren't here. They used to mess with you. They don't do that anymore. But when I went in, they were like, so, and I was like, did I pass or no? And I was very direct. And they said, yes, you passed. And I was like, great. Did my friends pass? And I asked about them specifically and they wouldn't give any information. I said, awesome. Thanks for your time. And I left. And I went out in the room and they announced Master Sommelier, Justin, yada, yada. It was fine. And I walked out there and I saw my friends that didn't have the pens on. And that was that. I don't believe in regret. I'm glad I did what I did. But there's one thing I wish I'd have changed about that day. After you pass the MS exam, you are invited into a room and there's a lot of really nice bottles of wine in that room. And there's a lunch and everybody has lunch and everybody pops these bottles. It might be in a restaurant. It might be in the hotel. This year, it happened to be at the hotel. And I went in that room and had lunch. And I wish I wouldn't have because my friends were outside. And I sat there and I was unhappy and I was surrounded by a whole bunch of MSs. And I know it was supposed to be a happy moment, but I had a knot in my stomach the entire time. I didn't like the person I was sitting next to. I didn't like the situation at all. And that's all I'll say about that. I took a couple bites and then I split and I think we found some beer and some tacos. I don't know. Like, I understand it's supposed to be a moment that everybody enjoys. And for a lot of people, they do enjoy it. I don't care about limelight. I don't care about those things. You know, I'd rather my people be happy. I'd rather my loved ones and my dog be happy and healthy than any kind of credential. Like I try to be out of the limelight, despite what my current situation is on the website at work. <laughs> it's like, you guys are paying me. That's fine. But please. January, I think 2020, you launch your own consulting business, More Wines. What kind of gave you the idea to start your own business? Is that just natural progression of after you pass the MS, it's like, what do I do now? Go work at a winery or go back to working at restaurants or open a wine shop. How'd you come up with you know doing the consultant business? It's one of the biggest questions you get asked after a big achievement is what's next? Oh my God, what are you going to do now? And like, just because you can pass an exam doesn't make you a winemaker all of a sudden. Uh, there are a lot of MSs out there that make really not good wine. And there are a couple that make really good wine, but like, you're not all of a sudden a different person. You're still the same person that takes out the trash and walks the dog. I was in Vegas at the time. And what I realized was that there's a lot of programs that needed a little bit of guidance. One of the other kind of focuses of like my life and career has been recognizing and building good habits and recognizing and stripping away bad habits. And I see it still. I see it out here. There was a lot of great restaurants with great concepts that don't put time, effort, and dedication into building a wine program. I'm not saying every restaurant needs to have a 10-page wine list. I actually like a one-page wine list. If you go to Little Pearl or you go to Rose's Luxury, you will see very well thought out, curated one-page wine lists that are approachable and digestible, that have something on there for everybody because it's supposed to be easy. And in Vegas, I saw all these places that didn't have that. They, there was no thought. There was, they were basically like, oh, cool. There's one distributor here. We'll let you build our list, populate our list, tell us how much to charge and do that and just do everything for us. Go ahead and program our POS and create our inventory systems and everything. And I was like, 
guys, I understand it's free if you let a distributor do that, but you could build like something immaculate if you just gave it a little bit more thought. And so I wanted to contribute to that thought. The website More Wines has brought some really interesting opportunities in. I've talked to people about like developing NFT concepts and putting together like websites that do this. I worked as a broker for a long time and I still have interesting side projects that are going on. Basically, I wanted to create that so that like there is an accessible way on there. I said, I'm kind of out of the limelight, so I don't really promote it. And honestly, I'm not worried about like getting, like generating any like revenue or anything from it. But I, I wanted to give to the community at a time and see if I could turn it into something bigger. It's cool and it's fun. And it's a really good little snapshot of how to take a concept and recognize part of it. So many restaurants only generate food revenue. You can only make so much money from beer. Cocktails are delicious and people love them, but they're labor intensive. You know how much it costs to buy stock, shelf, pop a bottle of wine? Like almost nothing. Buy a cooler. It's nothing. People don't think about this either. They go out to a restaurant. Oh, let's start off with a cocktail. Everybody, let's start off with a cocktail. You're going to order a cocktail. It's going to take you 10 minutes to get it because the bar is slammed. By the time it gets there, you could be halfway through with a bottle of wine. It takes a second to pop a bottle of wine, literally. It takes 10 seconds to find it and a second to pop it. I have never, ever had a cocktail beat me to the table. I hope that um, that kicks me in the butt tomorrow when I go back to work, but <laughs> that's true. It's good money. It's good money for the restaurant, and like, there's value in wine. I know people don't always feel that because their wine is so fucking expensive. And man, it is expensive, but there's value. There's value in a $100 bottle if you have the right person choosing that bottle and putting it in front of you, if you have the right person listening to what you like and giving you, you know, and actually like taking that information and giving it to, you know, and there's value in expensive one too. There's value in $10,000 bottles. There's a seesaw. And if you're on that side of the seesaw, then go for it. I am not on that side of the seesaw. When you're doing consultancy stuff, is it more about just looking at somebody's overall picture and pointing out the things that they wouldn't know because they haven't been through it. Like you have this years and years and years of experience at, I don't know, 14, 15 different places across four cities, you know, five cities. You can kind of go into a situation and be like, this is what you need to fix. The reason you guys don't know about this is because you've never encountered it because you have to experience it first in order to understand like that's what needs to be fixed kind of thing. There's a couple secrets and I'll give them all away right now. This is something that most Psalms completely neglect is understanding the concept and vision of what whoever, whether it's a chef or an owner or whatever the vision of the restaurant is. If you are really hardcore into Jura wines right now, because they're super natty and super popular and oh my God, look at this allocation I can get, but you're running an Italian program, fuck off. Like, do what's best for the program. Do what's best for the guest first. Do what's best for the concept. Do what's best for yourself. If you have an education, if you have a, like a, a relationship that you want to maintain with a supplier, I understand that. But at the same time, like do the guest first, man. Understand the concept. The other thing is there's a million different ways to do things the right way. And you got to find that right way for each endeavor. Just like coming into um, Rose's Restaurant Group, Rose's Restaurant Group has had a lot of really badass, strong people for a really long time. 
COVID has changed everything for everyone. And then after these people leave, there's a whole lot of systems that are missing. So just to use us currently for an example, like I go into one of the restaurants, I'm like, great, we're going to implement some systems. It all starts with proper inventory management, which leads to proper ordering. The other thing that you know a lot of Psalms do is like they'll come into a, a concept and like, oh, I got to put my stamp on this. I got to like, oh, I'm really into this. We got to have more orange wine. Orange wine is super cool right now. Well, guess what? Are you in an orange wine market? Are you in fucking Cleveland? It's okay to like slowly push boundaries, but like the way I always look at menu and, and that and how to develop a concept is like understand the concept, follow that. If you're opening a seafood restaurant, you probably shouldn't order every 99 point Napa cab you can get. If you're in a market that sells 99 point cabs, maybe you should. Like think about those things. Don't go into a situation and just start changing. You got to go in and like stop ordering stuff, learn, listen, and then develop a concept from there. Um, I think, you know, everyone hires these consultants and they're like, oh, I got a super cool consultant. I am going to have the coolest wine list and blah, blah, blah. And I'm going to be a trendsetter in this market. And that almost always fails because these people come in and they put like their personal stamp. I want my name on the menu. Like, what the hell is that? Like, take your, no one's, no one's name needs to be on a menu. Listen to like what the guest wants first and then what the concept is. And the answers are going to be there. It's as simple as that. And, and that's kind of the approach I take, you know, listening is, is more important than talking. We have two ears and one mouth. So you mentioned earlier, you know, when you guys get out to DC, you started having to interview different places that just seems contrary to what everybody I think in general or limited knowledge of kind of the sommelier world would believe like you're a master sommelier, like you had to interview, like what, you know, that doesn't make sense. So is that mostly just because new market, no connections kind of thing, or is that really kind of, even though you, yeah, you're a master sommelier, but master sommelier has got to interview too. It's a couple things. I really wanted to give respect to this new market. I could have come out here and found an investor and opened a place, which is doable. But at the same time, who's this new kid coming in here and thinking yada yada, not that I'm a kid, but you know what I mean? Basically, like I wanted to show respect to the area. I wanted to know everything that was out there. I interviewed at probably over 30 places and I took every talk I could with everybody, whether it was a massive Michelin yada yada or a huge company that had, you know, creators handing out soup in Ukraine or whatever, you know, like, or the, the hole in the wall down the road. That's like a wine shop that also has a 20 by the glass wine program. Like I literally talked to everybody because um, I wanted to understand the market before I made a decision. I also really enjoyed that time that I was unemployed. DC has free museums, basically just biked the city, got to really, really know the city. My partner, in the meantime, we move out here from work. She's working at home. She's like, what museum did you go to today? I actually really enjoyed the process. It was challenging and new. I feel like I got really good at interviewing, but more than that, like it helped me understand what it was that I was looking for. I'm not looking for a major title. I'm not looking for publicity. I was looking for what would make me the happiest and be challenging and be rewarding. I wanted to work with a great group of people that I could learn from and grow with. And all of those things I achieved. One of the happiest parts of my day is getting on my bike and riding the 1.2 miles to work. 
and riding home at the end of every night. In the six months, or I don't even know how long it's been since I've been there now, it's a really comfortable home and I have all those great people to work with and grow from. I think I've driven like 10 times, you know, and that's when it's like brutal outside. Just because you have a title to answer your question doesn't mean you're guaranteed a job. Everyone is expendable. And I mean that, man. Everyone is expendable. Also, we have reached a point where there might be enough MSs. I'm not saying that it needs to stop. I'm not saying that you should abandon your dreams, but you should definitely should not expect the Wonka golden ticket as soon as you are given a pen. You are going to go back to work. You're going to take out the trash and walk your dog. Nothing changes. Okay. Does it open doors? Yes. Does it provide maybe interviews or conversations that you wouldn't have otherwise? I'm sure it does. However, like I did that for the market. Um, I'm really glad. And also like an interview is two ways. And a lot of people don't think about this, you know, especially when you're younger, you go into an interview like, oh, I hope I get this job. Oh, I'm going to tell them what they want to hear and blah, blah, blah. The way to be is to be honest. You're interviewing them too. Are these people you want to spend a third of your life with, a third of your day with? You really need to ask yourself that too. And in the end, with Rose's Restaurant Group, the answer was, yeah, these are good people. Earlier this year, or maybe it was late last year, one of the things you were focusing on for 2023 was to seek out, share, and consume, quote unquote, well-made wine. What did you exactly mean by that? Ah, somebody reads Forbes, I see. I read everything. The amount of research I do on people is extensive. Oh, that's hilarious, dude. Thank you, first of all. And if I haven't said so yet, dude, thanks for the opportunity. It's been great to like talk and get to know you. I'm having a blast. Well-made wine. Okay, what I mean by that kind of circles back to where we are as a consumer society or as a capitalist society. We're in a place where not everybody can afford the benchmark great wines anymore. And thankfully, I've had exposure to a good bit of them. I still have a huge list of wines I've never tried. I have a huge list of unicorns that I'm constantly seeking um, that I will splurge for. Well-made wines, I'm not going to knock natty wines because um, I like natty wines. I Those gamets that inspired me to pass the test and to stop drinking for whatever. And then that gamay that I drank after I did pass, those were all like zero sulfur, natty ass wines. Like they're great stuff, but there is an ocean of poorly made wine. I'm not going to say it's natural or no sulfur or whatever, but they tend to lean that way. There's an ocean of poorly made wines. There's an ocean of shitty industrial wines out there too. And we all know them. Like we make fun of yellowtail and whatever. But honestly, like they're kind of in the same boat. They're poorly made wine. The answer is like well-made wines, they bring you back. They make you want to have another glass. I'm not going to tell you the producer, but I will tell you somebody was looking at my Instagram and I was making fun of allocated wines. They reached out and I said, Hey, you want some allocated gamay? I got three bottles of this and one bottle of this and two bottles of that. I got one case for you. They weren't expensive. They're like 28 to 48 costs. And I was like, cool. I've never heard of this producer. It's mostly gamay. Fuck it. Send it. And they sent it and it was atrocious. And I don't know what to do with it. I have still like a couple bottles laying around and I'm not going to put it on a wine list. I'm not going to put it in a pairing. Uh, the only thing I can think to do is to like hand sell it when somebody comes in and is like, bring me the trashiest shit you got. I want something 
that is fucked up and hasn't finished fermentation and was made under a pine tree in an open top barrel in the sun. Fuck it. That's it, man. And like to think that these wines become allocated, I don't get it, man. I just, I just don't get it. So it kind of really stuck it to me and it kind of, I don't know, it's the rock in my shoe and it just kind of made me mad. The answer is, if you read the rest of the article, is there is a place for every wine. It just might not be in your glass. And that's it. Like, I don't hate natty stuff. And as a psalm, this is our jobs. If somebody takes the time to make a wine, then we should take the time to taste it so that we know what it's about. White Zinfandel doesn't have a place in my glass, but it damn sure has a place in Aunt Ellen's or whatever. You could probably uh, find a tasting group and give those bottles to them and just throw them for a loop when they're doing like a blind tasting. I'm like, what the hell is this? But that's so mean, man. Like, that's a whole nother story too. But like, I've been in tasting groups with that MSs are leading, that MSs that are on panels that decide what are in the flights. And I show up and I'm like, cool, this is this, this is this. And like, oh, you got that wrong. That is a Pinot Noir from some extremely untestable region and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how the fuck is anyone ever supposed to get that right? Anybody pouring untestable wines is doing a disservice to people who are trying to take an exam. So vet your shit and please pour testable. What wine region are you most excited to focus on in the future? Because I think Gamay is kind of the one that you gravitate towards, kind of got you hooked or you definitely recognize the most with, you know, Beaujolais and Gamay and everything. But what are you excited about to explore, learn about in the future or something that you haven't really paid attention to, but you're kind of looking around and you're like, well, that seems pretty cool. Like, I wonder what's going on over there. The first thing I know is that I don't know everything. I damn sure don't. Just like anybody, like sometimes the wine cooler gets a little stale and I find myself drinking a whole bunch of French wine, a whole bunch of Gamay and a whole bunch of like that 20 to $30, whatever. I love, I love French Chardonnay and Aligote and stuff like that. But like, it also gets old rather than focus on one specific area or region. I can't really hone it in. My thing is just like, keep your mind open and keep trying stuff because you're going to find the next thing. Um, there's basically two types of consumers of wine. I found there's that person that tastes Miomi and loves it. And guess what? Good for them, man. I don't care if you want to drink Miomi or Camus or whatever, Omega purple, yada, yada for the rest of your life. Good. Be happy and do that. I've always been one to be like, cool. That's what that tastes like. Moving on. Like even when I buy for the house, like I've never, ever bought more than like six bottles of anything. Cause by the time I get to the end of six bottles, I'm like fucking sick of it. So basically just keep trying new stuff. I can tell you that I find immense value and appreciation for the wines of the Iberian Peninsula. I don't think we have enough access to really well-made Portuguese and Spanish wines. I think the value is there. I'm thrilled for it. There's also, please don't become more allocated, but damn it, I love what people like Ken and Erica are doing with the Walter Scott wines out of Oregon. That sh those Chardonnays are not only world-class, they are some of the best Chardonnays in America. I couldn't love them more. And to see people like them pushing the boundaries of what a region is known for and stepping it up that fucking high is amazing. So that's what I'm looking for. Are you able to enjoy dinner out when you guys go out? Or do you compulsively check the wine list, bottle list, like first thing when you sit down, see what they have? 
it's tough. I try really hard not to. Basically, another thing I'm really working on is like living in the moment. And if you are sitting with your partner across the table and you're just like buried in a wine list, like how attractive is that really? You know, like the action is in the conversation and the action is, you know, in her eyes. So that's where I try to focus. I don't want to critique anybody's situation, their wine list or whatever. It's situational. I chalk it up to a couple different things. One is I'm not going to have a Negroni in a Mexican restaurant and I'm not going to have margarita in an Italian restaurant. So kind of be situational with where you are. The other thing is regardless of if they know your, you know, if you have a title or whatever, it doesn't really matter. When you go to your mechanic, you don't tell them how to change your oil. When you go to the gym, you don't like, oh, I don't work out that way because blah, blah, blah. like when you go to a restaurant, let those people do their fucking job, man. Ask them, what are you into? What goes with your food? I like drinking this, but I'm open. There's a lot of people like always my least favorite guests. And yes, not every guest is like, you know, a warm hug. There, some of them, some of them are taxing. It's, it's the industry, you know, but my least favorite guests are always the ones that come in and they're like, I fucking know everything. You can't tell me shit. I am going to do this and that. And I'm like, cool. You're probably going to not enjoy your experience as much as the people who are open-minded. So be open-minded when you go out. The best tables are always, and the best guests are always the ones that come in and be like, look, we've never been here. We don't really know what to do. We like this and that. And then, you know, just communicate and let people do the thing. When you look at the next generation of sommeliers, what do you see? It's really tough. Once again, we have a lot of people who aren't as exposed to the classics as they should be. And I'm not saying um, Rioja should taste the same forever. I'm not saying that Bordeaux is the answer to everything. But what I am saying is if they don't have the exposure to the classics, they're going to have a really hard time identifying what makes a great wine. One of my favorite things to do is when somebody comes in with a sample or whatever, I never look at the price and I taste it. And one of my superpowers is being able to guess the price of that wine, like relatively closely, almost constantly. When I'm shocked or when I'm off, that's when I buy that wine. If somebody comes in with a Pinot Noir, I'm like, damn, that's some good fucking Volnay. I bet it's $60 a bottle. And it turns out it's a 1333 New Zealand uh, guess what? That one's going on the fucking list. So Psalms now, they need that exposure and I don't think they have it. And young Psalms coming up, there's a lot of talent, man. There's a lot of really great people. The community here in DC is stupendous. I absolutely love them. I really hope that people know that they're fucking servants, man. Like you are here to provide a service. That service is usually... 20 to 50% of a business model. You're not saving anyone's life. You're not a doctor. Your pocket square does not matter. The type of socks you have on does not in any way affect your personality. Please, please just pour the wine. Don't get me wrong. I get it. Hey, getting dressed up is fun. Putting on a fancy suit is fun. But at the end of the day, it's not about you. It's about the guest. It's not about your allocation. It's about the guest. It's not about how rare your glasses are from Japan or whatever. It's about the guests. So like learn, find your passion, find what fuels you and, and stick with it and go with it. And like, yeah, maybe go down the rabbit hole a little bit. Stay on point. What do you think the next wine region is to explode? Previous answer we've had for this, Michigan, 
was one that uh, someone thought was going to be kind of the next big thing. But is there anything that you kind of see Mexico is kind of the wild west because they can do whatever, <laughs> which I just learned about recently. I was like, oh, OK, that's crazy, but also interesting at the same time. So is there any region of the world that you kind of are looking with one eye and just kind of watching and think like, oh, that might you know explode? For me, it's more about style. I wish I could give you a more concise answer. There are a lot of winemakers all over the world that are struggling with a lot of change to bring back Bordeaux. Like, man, they're planting Turga National out there now. Like, what the hell is going on in the world uh, legally? So I, I really don't know the answer. I know that I am thrilled to be alive right now. The best wines that have ever been made have been made within my lifetime or within a consumable range of my lifetime. I really couldn't say. Um, I think Australia is about to have like a like a resurgence of quality. You know, they kind of rode that Parker wave for a while. They got a lot of high points. They made a lot of big alcoholic, super thick skin, chewy wines. And then they kind of faded away. And like when you revisit those wines, they're actually pretty good with some age on them. But like to go back to that 1333 Pinot Noir, that 1333 bottle Pinot Noir, like that wine over-delivered. And I think the Southern Hemisphere is going to surprise us with the quality it's going to be able to make. So watch out. Did you ever consider being a winemaker or anything? Or was that just never an interest? I know my limitations to a degree. Uh, I would love to make a label. I actually have a whole list of like concepts for the label. My good friend to bring it, bring him back up, Greg from Aspen. He took on some cool projects and I kind of watched his progress and gains and everything. And I really, in a way, envied it and um, the guts to go and do that. But at the end of the day, it takes a little bit more commitment than I have to give. I fear anything you want to do, you want to do whole ass. There ain't no half ass in it. I, I don't know that I have the focus to do it correctly. And I think if it's not done correctly, then I would be disappointed by it. Is it out of the question? Absolutely not. Can, can we source killer fruit? Hell yeah. That's about it. What's next for you professionally? You know, you have the consulting business. You're working at the Roses Restaurant Group, you know, running the wine program there. But anything else on the horizon for you? My huge focus is to identify and let myself be happy. Coming out of exams and that aspect of my life is something I think about all the time. And I question whether, you know, it was the right move. And ultimately it was. I've lived in a lot of cool places and we moved out here once again, sight unseen. I absolutely fell in love with the town and the people. And this is the happiest I've ever been. And to be able to like acknowledge that has been huge. I just want to make the most of every moment and be in this wonderful relationship. And that's it, man. Like I just want to keep being happy professionally. Nah, I am um, beyond content. I want to stay with this group. Once again, I want it to be like a place that people realize is a place to learn and grow. I want to help mentor people. I want to continue to be part of tasting groups, but um, I want to be happy. That's it. So this next question comes from the previous guest on the podcast, Chef Mark Zimmerman. He's the owner and chef at Gozu. And also they're going to be opening up a new concept, Yakoi, uh, which are both in San Francisco, California. He left behind a question what would be your last meal on earth? I think it would be more about the company than it would be about the food. 
And I don't know. That's a great question. I can tell you there'd probably be a lot of really good raw fish and a lot of beer. Yeah. And a sharp knife. <laughs> that's about it. And the people I love and a, and a dog sitting at the table, like just begging for scraps, but in a really polite way. <laughs> that's it. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? It can be anything. What trend are you currently seeing in our industry that needs to go away? This next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, which organization would you recommend an aspiring sommelier start with? CMS, WSET, or Society of Wine? That's a great question. And to go back to a point that we touched on earlier, I highly recommend that you check out that WWA education site. First, you have to define your goal and what it is that you want to do as a person then you should recognize the best way to get there. Because all of these have different avenues and they, they all lead to different outcomes. So find out what it is that you really want to do. And then the other thing is find out how you study. As I mentioned earlier, I would not succeed in WSET because of its format. I have succeeded with the court because of its format. I basically could study on my own and I didn't have platforms. I didn't have a teacher being like, oh, you got to do this and blah, blah, blah. You know? So ask yourself how you study. How do you do the best? How do you react best? And then ask yourself your goals. And that's what the answer is because it's, it's an individual thing. It's not about this is the best program because they're not the best programs for everybody. It's really up to the individual. One thing in wine is we're always, when we study, we're always looking for formulas. When we're talking to that famous Pinot Noir producer, we say, well, how much whole cluster do you use? Uh, how much do you stemming? Blah, 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 blah. And we always think that there's like a fucking formula to everything. And the answer is there's not. Every vintage is different. Every person is different. Every glass of wine is different. There's a saying that there aren't any great wines. There's only great bottles. That bottle of 47 Cheval Blanc could have been corked but it happened to be a great bottle. That bottle of Gamay was a great bottle that inspired me to go on and pass an exam. It could have easily been court. It's all about the individual. It's all about the moment. And it's all about self-realization of what you need, what your goals are, and what works best for you. So this last set of questions we asked to all the wine professionals that come on the podcast, so nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far? Easily Jay Fletcher. Jay Fletcher is my mentor in Aspen. He has helped more people pass tasting and learn how to take an exam than any other MS that I'm aware of. Ask Bobby Stuckey. So there's that. I would not have taken the exam without Jay. Jay basically made me take the exam. Thanks, Jay. What is your desert island wine? Oh, probably a beer. No. <laughs> um, well, obviously fucking Gamay, dude. You know, my entire internet persona is Gamay, so on brand. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So it can't be one of the Roses restaurants. DC restaurant, you know, scenario I usually give. Person gets stuck at the airport, flight gets canceled, they're stuck overnight. They reach out to you. Hey, where should we go eat? You guys are closed. You point them in this direction. I already brought up Albi, so I'm not going to recommend that one. There is a tiny little hole-in-the-wall sushi restaurant that we recently discovered. It is medium plus expensive, but it is highly delicious, and it's called Capital Sushi. It's omakase, and it's 100 bucks a head, and they crush. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So a place you have not visited yet, but you still want to travel to, and also a restaurant you have not eaten or dined at yet, but you still want to get to one day. Greece is pretty high on the list. As far as restaurants go, 
it's really situational for me. Like I said, I don't follow chefs or, or any of that stuff. We were actually having the conversation this morning, like, do we go to enough big meals? Do we do this? Our current focus is a place it's local and it's called the Dabney and we really want to go check it out. And I'm looking forward to when that happens. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working. Fuck bro. I've literally been through hurricanes. So damn brutal. When I was a chef, I had a really great line cook uh, named Jazz. He had federal marshals come after him. And like they came into the restaurant and into the kitchen. And I was like, hey, man, we're in the middle of service. And they're like, federal marshals. And they took that guy away. Yeah, back of the house wins. Like everyone's all front of the house horror stories and exploding champagne bottles and guests and blah, blah, blah. And like after a while, it all just kind of becomes the same. And you reach a point where you're like, oh, I've dealt with this before. Okay. But like back of the house was crazy, man. Like the stuff I've seen is nuts. That was one example. Charleston's wild. Did you ever find out what happened to him? Did he ever come back? Yeah, he came back the next week and I let him come back to work. And that was it. And I didn't ask any questions. I just like, look, people have shit in their lives. We all are going through something. We have good days and bad days. So me needing to know what happens is that's not my business. Food or drink, guilty pleasures or anything, fast food, candy, whatever that's unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? Peanuts, dude. I love peanuts. No fast food. I gave up fast food, coffee. I gave up soda and all that shit a really, really long time ago when I came out of the kitchens because I was very unhealthy as a chef, but not like... I just can't eat enough peanuts, dude. I love them. Um, being back here on the West Coast or on the East Coast and being this close to Virginia, Virginia has amazing peanuts and like a little handful. It just gets me through. Guilty pleasures, drink wise, Muscadet. Like, I don't know if that's really considered a guilty pleasure, but man, I love a $10 Muscadet. I don't care if it comes from Trader Joe's or like the coolest kid, new producer on the block. Like, I just love this stuff. I wish I had a, a dirtier answer for you. Sorry. Next question, wine recommendations. So we broke it up into four categories. So zero to $20 a bottle, zero to 50, zero to a hundred, and then over a hundred. If you have three that are $19.99 that you want to recommend, that checks all those categories. So you don't have to go above 50, but below 100. Cheap bottle. I won't even throw out a producer because I'm not going to pull up the inventory and, and tell you in, in time. But like Muscadet, it crushes and it's rarely more than $20 a bottle in a decent wine shop. Um, look for it. I'm talking about Malone de Bourgogne. Muscadet serve at Maine. Surly. I don't care about the producer. It's usually going to overperform. That's the thing about wine is it's got to overperform. If I'm spending 100 bucks, it better taste like three. Zero to 50. This is the sweet spot. I would say seek out Gamay producers from the importer Paris Wine Company. Look for Jan, Y-A-N-N, Bertrand, or Pierre Cotton. Those are the wines that I celebrated with and helped me get into um, and pass the exam. Zero to 100. There's a lot of great wine out there, and it's really important to explore those things. Burgundy's a heartbreaker, so I'm not saying you have to go there, but look up the classics. If you're going to spend money, spend money on something classic. If you want to taste the best Nebbiolo in the world, look up some Conterno. Get it. Is it something you need every day? Absolutely not. Another thing is when you get that expensive bottle, don't squirrel it away. Don't hide it. Don't be like, it's going to be ready in 10 years, blah, blah, blah. 
Wine is an agricultural product. It is to be consumed. Wine is food. Enjoy it. Next time you are stuck in traffic or having a bad day, go home and open that bottle and you're going to forget about that bad day and you're going to remember that bottle. So open it. This is one of the questions, but as wine gets aged, the percentage of chance of it going bad increases dramatically, right? Tons. Just generally what I stick for, I forget the percentage and these are just like, don't hold me to these numbers, but like way over 90% of wine that is purchased is consumed within 24 hours. So most wine that is produced in the entire world is meant to be consumed within five years of harvest date. Of the very small amount that is supposed to be aged, it's totally dependent on producer, um, region, grape, vintage. Not everything ages well. Wines that we expect to be profound fall apart. That 76 Chateauneuf de Pop that I thought was going to be trash, that I literally paid $40 a bottle for, was fucking profound. So, like, you never know. Some of the best old wines I've ever had have been through floods in the summertime. Like, there's no way this wine should be good, but it's immaculate. And some of the wines that come from unbelievable provenance that came directly from like the winemaker's cellar are complete trash. So you never know, man. Um, and it's always better to drink it before it goes bad than after. So unless it's like an icon 50-year bottle, 10 to 15 years is probably a good place to really experience a wine. Favorite Instagram account you follow? Do you have one? Anything that you just, when you see it, you never really skip it? I got so many. I'll keep it short. This Week in Science is fantastic. Every single week, they put out like a bunch of different stories. They're not always super current, but you can check them out. It's great stuff. Shitty wine memes all day long. Really good people, really good content. Another one is the Angry Psalm. Great content. I really enjoy these pages and laughing at it. There's like two or three wine ones I'm definitely forgetting, but those those stand out immediately. Don't make me look. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Not everybody is or was. If you were, is there an episode moment scene about him that uh, stands out? If you weren't, is there anybody else who was a kind of culinary TV personality, Emerald, Julie Child, whoever, that you kind of gravitated towards when you were coming up through your career? No, man, I'll echo the the Bourdain. He's the one personality that um, I've actually like read some of the books and like get the perspective. And I also get why not everybody was into it. But one thing I loved and I take away from him and his work is like the being in the moment and the kind of like stoic approach to like life in general and and what that moment means. Where can people find you? Social media, website, reservations, plug, anything and everything. If you want to meet me in person, please come down to the restaurants. The restaurants are a blast. They each have their own different personalities. Once again, Pineapple and Pearl, if you're feeling really happy and spendy and special occasion, Rose's Restaurant, um, Rose's Luxury is the kind of benchmark that's great. And um, Little Pearl is amazing. I highly recommend checking that restaurant out. So if you want to see me in person, please come on down to DC. It, uh, I love it. Instagram, Gamay Face. That's it. Please reach out via there. Uh, I'm not looking for follows and whatever. And if you try to sell me any religion or anything, I'm probably going to block you. But for the most part, yeah, if, like, if you're a food and beverage person and you want to connect, that's the quickest way. I look at it, I'm sure, once a day. The website that I have is great. I don't always check the email, but that morewines.com, it's there. That's more for like 
if you have a restaurant or a podcast, or you're looking for a speaking engagement and you want like a professional interaction, then please reach out via um, morewines.com. Otherwise, I'm accessible. I don't like the limelight. I don't like the spotlight, but please, please come see me and drink some wine. I will keep your glass full. This was awesome. Completely different perspective on just the whole exam culture and everything that you know you went through. You know, we've only ever had one other master sommelier on the podcast you're still a master sommelier you pass the test uh, whether you want to be recognized as one or not you passed it and that's an achievement that still has to be uh mentioned when it can be just because of how difficult it is to complete so your story's pretty wild pretty incredible um and it's cool to see you in the dc market i get the chance usually to go there once a year so I'll be looking forward to stopping in we went to pineapple and pearls like it was pre-COVID. We had a great time. I think the chef there at the time was like Bin Lu, I think it was his name or whatever, but they had a great like NA pairing program that they did and still like the gold standard for us. My wife is, she drinks here or there, but she's mostly into NA just because of basically allergic reaction to alcohol um, that she had for a while. So that's still kind of the gold standard for her of any NA stuff she comes across is like, how does it compare to that time that we were at pineapple and pearls and they paired the entire tasty menu na for her we still do it it was awesome and i'm sure it's still you know same quality and everything too so we've had a couple of people on that have worked at roses in the past so that's definitely on our bucket list of places to to check out just because of everything we've heard and people you know that have worked there and spent time there too as well so I'm sure we'll see you soon in, in probably the next couple of months. You know, I think I might have some sort of work thing out there in March or April. So I'll definitely be stopping in if I get the chance, but otherwise stay in touch. And if there's anything you ever need from us, you know, let us know. We try and support everybody as much as we can. They support us to come on the podcast. So we want to make sure that whatever they're doing is highlighted as much as possible so they can continue to do what they love and they're passionate about. Yeah. Ray, thanks for the time. It's been awesome to connect. I'd look forward to connecting in person and have an awesome day, brother. A big thanks again to Justin for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his day to come on, chat about his career, share his thoughts, his beliefs uh, within the wine world. Like I said, super refreshing perspective to hear from somebody who's achieved all you can achieve essentially with wine certifications and wine testing. The only other thing you could even do probably is uh, try and go through the master of wine and uh, apply for that. Once you kind of reach this finality point with your testing career in the wine industry, you're kind of done. Like Nobody really jumps back in like after five years and was like, yeah, I want to do some more certifications. Like, so I think, you know, everybody accepts, like he said, you know, once you get done, you kind of go through this depression. And once you kind of pull yourself out of it, then it's just kind of back to life as normal. That chapter is kind of done with. I thought that was a super unique perspective to hear. And I think is something that most can apply to whatever industry, just even outside of the wine industry, if you're listening to this, whether you're a chef, restaurant owner, or just somebody who enjoys food, but works, you know, in sales or something like that. You can find him on Instagram at Gamayface. Also check out his website, morewines.com. It's where he does all his kind of wine consulting. So you can reach out to him if you're interested and he can get in touch with you and you guys can kind of figure out um, what you're looking for and if he can help. Also, you can find him at the Roses Restaurant Group Properties. So that's Roses Luxury, Pineapple and Pearls, Little Pearl and Roses at Home. They all have Instagram accounts, pretty self-explanatory, at Roses Luxury, at Pineapple and spelt out Pearls DC, and then at Little Pearl DC and at Roses at Home. DC are the four accounts there. So 
check out those uh, for food, uh, reservations, all that stuff. If you're in the DC area, it's one of the premier restaurant groups out there. So they got, uh, I think four Michelin stars. I think pineapple has two little pearls got one and roses has one. So I think they have four currently now. And obviously Aaron Silverman, Bon Appetit and all that stuff. If you're curious about kind of some of the stuff that goes on there, check out the BJ Lieberman podcast that we did. We've had him on um, twice, but his first one, he talks about a lot of his career coming up through there, how he wound up in DC, working there, helping open that restaurant, the documentary that they did too, as well, that they participated in. So I think that's like episode four or five, somewhere in there. It's one of the first episodes that we did, but it's still all relevant information. So you can go and check that out. You can check us out too on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com, and then make sure to follow, subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you prefer to use. That is it for this week and this week's episode. There will not be an episode next week. Uh, we'll be off next week and then be coming back after that. We will be traveling, so we will not have an episode next week. Too much to coordinate with everything that we got going on. So um, we're just going to take the week off, but we will be back with a brand new episode after that. So appreciate everybody listening. If you've been here for a while. Thank you for your continued support. Continue to help spread the word. If you're new, welcome. Uh, make sure to check out the back catalog. All the episodes are up to date and all are kind of universally themed and everything. So shouldn't be any audio issues, but if you discover something, feel free to write us um, either through the contact portal or hit us up spoonmob.yahoo.com. You guys can also leave uh, ratings and reviews for the podcast on, you know, if you use Apple, leave us a review. Most of the ones, I think there's only like three or four currently, and like two of them are negative. One doesn't apply. And then there's another one that's like just really randomly generic. So as you'll find, if you look at the rating and review section of podcasts, um, usually it's the negative ones people post about. People don't really post positive stuff. Um, that's just kind of the way life goes, I think. But if you get a chance, make sure to, you know, rate us, leave a review if you enjoy the podcast. I appreciate anything that you guys do to help spread the word as you guys have always been helpful in that regard. But uh,